welcome to the I Spy with My MyOI podcast. I am your host, Brittany Sierra. I am a certified oral facial myologist, registered dental hygienist, and lifelong learner. My goal with this podcast is to expand your knowledge of oral facial myofunctional disorders and to bring you up to date in current literature so that together we can get to the root of the problem. You ask, we'll answer by collaborating with true pioneers and specialties associated with the myo world. Join me on this journey as we dive into the life-altering world of tethered oral tissues and airway space. Let's do this thing. Quick disclaimer, all content expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the speakers and is for informational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Because every person is so unique, you should always consult with your specialized healthcare professional. Dr. Stephen Olmos has been in private practice for more than 30 years, with the last 25 years devoted to research and treatment of craniofacial pain and sleep-related breathing disorders. He obtained his DDS from the University of Southern California School of Dentistry and is board certified in both chronic pain and sleep breathing disorders by the American Board of Craniofacial Pain, American Board of Dental Sleep Medicine, and American Board of Craniofacial Pain and Dental Sleep Medicine. Dr. Olmos is the founder of TMJ and Sleep Therapy Centers International, with over 60 licensed locations in seven countries dedicated exclusively to the diagnosis and treatment of craniofacial pain and sleep disorders. He is the immediate past president of the American Academy of Craniofacial Pain and continues to lecture and educate internationally. Good afternoon, Dr. Olmos. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on here with me and chat for a little bit. Welcome. It's my pleasure, Brittany. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you on here. Um, I chat quite often with Dr. Christina McGuire, um, who's also, I, we're trying to coordinate a date to get her on here, but she was like, you have to interview Dr. Olmos. And I was like, oh my gosh, absolutely. So I'm so glad that we were able to find a date and get you on here. I'm sure you're, you know, you're uh, very busy, but let's start off. If you want to tell us all a little bit about your journey from, you know, traditional dentistry to what you do now. Well, sure. Um, well, um, gosh, it's many years ago now that um, <laughs> uh, my practice has been limited to treating chronic pain and breathing problems for you know over 25 years, I think. So, um, you know, I, I did all the general dentistry uh, type um, procedures and there was always this group of people who were in pain and no one ever knew what to do with them. And I would send them to the oral surgeon and they never got better. And I thought, well, probably the orthodontist, uh, you know, can figure this out. And no, they, they, they couldn't help them. And then I said, well, probably the prosthodontists know how to do this. So I would send them there. And every specialty of medicine, but no, I mean, dentistry, but nobody really knew what to do. And it was really sad watching these people just suffer, you know. So it kind of stimulated me to, to try to find out. And I took courses and did things. And, you know, you have some successes, you have some failures, but you just keep, you know, trying to learn more. Um, pain is a very, very difficult field of medicine and dentistry. And so there's just so many factors. And so I just got enthralled with that. And uh, as I was helping more and more people over time, um, I just decided that this is what I wanted to do every day, all day. I just wanted to help people in this field. So I sold my general dentistry practice to, to my associate, and I started a practice um, completely um, focused in this way. And it was really quite a, a learning path. I took a year off to study and um, basically locked myself in after I sold my practice in my, my office here and, and studied and um, uh, just you know, 12, 14 hours a day, um, trained his staff, opened up. I thought this was semi-retirement. Turns out um, it was for about two months and then I got crazy busy and it's been busy ever since. But um, I started to teach. People asked me to start doing some lectures and then I invited them to my practice and I would teach them, you know, how to, how to treat these patients. And then it ended up people said, well, how, I want to do what you do. How, how, you know, how can I do what you do? And, and so we came up with this concept of, of um, 
of certified centers where they're mentored and, and, and trained in the protocols that, that, that I've developed. And now we populate um, seven different countries where uh, next week we'll be up to 66 centers through seven countries. So we're throughout uh, the US and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, um, UAE and Bahrain, and, and uh, I mean in um, uh, Dubai and then in, in Bahrain. So yeah, we're all over the world. Um, we're setting protocols. We're, we're, we have a standardized protocol so we collect data so that we can publish. And that's one of the big contributions that we make is um, multi-center data collection, which is very powerful literature. And uh, so that's, that's where we are right now. Um, I have no idea how high is up. I don't know how many more and uh, how, how many more countries, but that's it's my desire to, to populate the world with this thought process of actually trying to find the origin of the problem rather than just cover it up with um, medicines and Botox and all of these kinds yeah. of treatments. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. And then in the midst of this all, you also wrote your book, Airway Management, A Solution for Our Health Crisis. Um, and that was, was it last year or the year before that that book came out? Uh, it came out in November of last year. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and how... You just figured, why not? Let's just write a book. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's, um, you know, I've tried many institutionalized ways of trying to, to change the way dentists are, are, are educated. And uh -huh. um, um, you being in the field, you understand how limited our education is on these subjects. Um, people think, you know, the general population actually thinks we were trained in treating chronic pain and breathing, but... As you know, we weren't, mm -hmm. and um, and and so uh, there's a huge void. So it's kind of my mission to work through universities around the world to do that. But you know, quite honestly, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of things that prevent um, introduction of new ideas. But you know what? If you go to the people and just explain it to the populace, mm -hmm. and they'll see and they'll make choices. And that's why I wrote the book is to say, listen, I don't think most people appreciate that the most profound, most important function of all life is to breathe. Mm -hmm. And if you don't breathe properly, and, and of course proper breathing is through your nose, and if you don't do that, there are consequences. There are consequences to your health, there's consequences to postural and, and uh, orthopedic consequences, and, and a lot of the orofacial pain issues that we're seeing are directly related to respiratory. Absolutely. So I love how, you know, I think I was, I don't know if I was on your website or somewhere I was reading something, um, you know, you were saying, you were saying how you can't treat chronic pain without treating breathing, that they need to be treated simultaneously. Absolutely. Um, we just submitted a paper uh, to the Journal of Orofacial Pain and Headaches um, just last week. We had about 1,400 patients in our study that we collected from about uh, 15 of our centers, uh, you know, around the world. And um, we're just trying to find the correlation between nasal obstruction through looking at a CBCT and uh, oral facial pain. And what we found is, is the first point of entry, the nasal valve has the greatest uh, relationship. In fact, the odds ratio of, of having facial pain, if you have a nasal valve a compromise, an impingement, is, is 6.97 times greater. So, wow. so the, the having the nose pinched and having the mouth breathe um, is going to uh, result in facial pain. So that's a very new thought. Um, no one's ever published that before. And um, people need to understand there's consequences. Uh, I mean, my goodness, if you just understand the immune system, um, that is your nose, um, as opposed to breathing through your mouth, which is the absence of it, um, and especially in these times, it's just crazy. You know, Absolutely. I understand that. 100%. And now more than ever, we need to be breathing through our nose. Um, if you want to talk a little bit, you know, some people, so there's healthcare professionals that listen to this, general population, so a little mix of everybody. Um, some people might be thinking, how could my TMJ be affected by the way I breathe? So if you want to touch on that a little bit. Well, sure. You know, there's, there's different... Um, conditions that, that and will produce facial pain and jaw problems. 
So um, we talked a little bit about the nose. Well, for sure, you know, if your nose is blocked either by the valve or internally because of structure, deviated septum, all these kinds of pathologies, or soft tissue hypertrophy, that you're going to mouth breathe. And if you mouth breathe, the, the muscles that, that have to now hold your mouth open, which is abnormal, fatigue. And so then they, they contract in order to resolve that. So you have a constant open, contract, open, contract. And that, you know, is the temporal headaches, facial pain that a lot of people wake with. Mm -hmm. They also have a, a different type of breathing problem, and that's unconscious collapse of the airway. So that would be like obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea where the throat closes, and then the brain is woken by the increase in CO2, and it causes the jaw to come forward in order to open the airway. So the constant movements of a person who has a collapsible airway and may or may not have an obstructed nose. So those both combine to physical problems that the person leads to disturb sleep, and, and then they end up with facial pain. And then they have chronic postural problems because of the inflammation of the jaw. So they have neck pain, they have low back pain, they have foot pain. These are all the things that occur in the daytime. Those go on long enough, and now that pain is disturbing to sleep. 50% of all insomnia is related to chronic pain. So you can't get to sleep if you're producing cortisol and now you're trying to relax, but you can't because you literally have a knife in your back. And so this is really hard because now people can't get to sleep or if they can get to sleep, they're disturbed from sleep. And so these multiple interruptions result in daytime fatigue. You wake tired, that makes sense. But if it stays like that long enough, okay, now that's diagnosed as, as a, um, a depression syndrome. But in reality, it's fatigue. And unfortunately, the drugs that are given, the antidepressants um, that are given uh, for these situations actually worsen sleep. They lighten sleep, they shorten sleep, and they decrease REM. So by taking those drugs for depression, because you have bad sleep, only worsens sleep and then makes you more dependent on the drugs. So this is the, the mechanism of just chasing your tail, if you will, right. um, as opposed to looking at the origin. And, and that's what I try to do in our protocols. We, look, we try to find origin, address that, and then you have a cascade of correction of all of these symptoms. And that makes more sense to me, and it's worked very well. Absolutely. Now, do you find, I mean, I, I'm sure, you know, the sleep doctor, um, well, you're a sleep doctor, but um, when we're talking about results of sleep studies, so a lot of times, as you know, they're all insurance driven and what's being looked for are apneic events. Um, what do you find, like what results would you say need to be focused on more in a sleep study that aren't? Like besides just, you know, the AHI number, like what else are you honing in on? Arousal threshold. Uh, excuse me, um, it's uh, arousals, um, there's an arousal index. So you have an AHI, that's a determinant of you know, the pathology of sleep, mm -hmm. which was developed by uh, Christian Gimeno, who never intended that to be a standard because it's a gross oversimplification in his words. What he said was, the thing we should concentrate in is the arousals. Mm -hmm. How many times are people awoken from sleep? Because that will literally kill you. Because every time you wake up, not fully awake, but just taken from deeper to lighter sleep, your body produces cortisol. And that constant cortisol is causing the cardiovascular issues that people end up with strokes and heart attacks. Okay, So in those mechanisms, we need to be looking at how many times people wake up. But a lot of these home sleep studies that are now being pushed because insurance companies want to reduce cost to them, um, don't have electrodes on the head. They don't know how many times people wake. They're just trying to make it as simple as, do you suffocate uh, enough times to be ventilated? I mean, that's all they're looking at. Um, but in reality, see, I treat, to, I treat to restoration of normal sleep. Mm -hmm. Other people might treat to AHI. Okay, right. well, I'm going to do that too. But if I have a person who has a normal AHI but wakes up 20 times a night, well, then that's not normal sleep, and that's what I address. So I try to look at the whole picture because in the general health, if you don't have consolidated sleep, 
you, you can't be a healthy person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always mind blowing to me when, you know, I meet patients that tell me that they've had insomnia for years and that nobody, this, they had sleep, you know, sleep tests done and nobody ever said anything. They said they're fine. And I can't even imagine, you know, as a person going through that, just how, I mean, that's depressing enough not, you know, not getting that sleep you needed. And then kind of me like being, feeling like you're kind of crazy. Like, you know, there's something wrong, but there's not a doctor that's there, like telling you exactly what we can do and where the, you know, the root cause of all of this is going on. Um, I wish we had a, a TMJ sleep center around here. That would be fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, actually, and we do have one, um, you know, there's, they're listed on our website. Uh, and, um, but you're right. Um, and, and the reason why that is, is because, um, you know, people tend to think that physicians are trained in this area, but um, less than one hour per year is devoted to this in either medicine or dentistry um, education. So you're, you're getting one hour out of a whole year of curriculum of all these things that you're learning. And um, you certainly in this field, which is, um, you know, quite, uh, quite large and, you know, uh, lots of information. I mean, how much can you learn and how much are you going to retain out of all of that? And then when you're going to go into practice, how much are you going to emphasize that? Here's the amazing thing to me. The most vital function of a human being is the last thing that's evaluated by a healthcare practitioner. Oh, that's so interesting the way you just put that. It's a fact. Yeah. It's a fact. Wow. Who looked at breathing? Right. Nobody does. And that's, you know, the other issue too that I feel um, a lot of us struggle with when we're building our, you know, interdisciplinary team is getting an ENT on board to truly assess the airway and how it's affecting the patient's overall health. You know, you would think that sending a patient to an ENT, that all ENTs are airway centric, but that's not, you know, necessarily the case. Um, And that is, you know, a super frustrating part when we send, you know, a child to have their tonsils and adenoids, you know, evaluated. And we know that they're enlarged and they're causing issues to their airway and obstructing them, but they don't do anything for it. Or they just say, you know, let's watch it. They're not even saying, okay, you need to find you know, an airway centric dentist, let's, let's expand, let's do this. It's just, okay, go home, let's watch this, um, give you some nasal spray and send you on your way. Well, I try to explain it like this to my patients, um, that if, because a lot of times, like, just like you said, you know, I'm showing them the x-rays, I'm showing them the instructions, here's the issues, mm-hmm. now you need to go be evaluated by an ENT. And, you know, very often because of insurance, they're directed certain ways and they maybe can't see the person that you're most uh, familiar with and worked with that understands this. So I explain it like this when they come back after the person just told them that they have absolutely no problems. And so then I, I, I tell them, well, listen, you know, one of the questions that you have to ask this person is, what is your criteria for surgery? When is something bad enough that it requires? So I just need to know that. I mean, as a patient, I just need to know that. Right. Because I tell them, look, here's a, here's a whole timeline uh, or a philosophy, you know, of, of ENTs. So one might say, well, listen, uh, my criteria is that if you're going to die tomorrow, then you need surgery. Mm-hmm. And then the other spectrum is someone to say, oh, I could see how quality of life would be greatly improved by this surgery. And then you've got everybody in between. Right. So how do you know which one you went to? Okay. It's, it's the one that clearly there's pathology. I mean, if you look at an x-ray and, you know, you see all these things, then clearly that person's criteria is, well, you need to be near death. Okay. Whereas someone else, you know, will visualize these things and go, oh, I see why you're struggling and why you might have these other problems. So clearly we need to do that. Now, those people are, have a different philosophy on how to restore it. Because see, how you fix it is very different in ENT thought process. Right. Um, I've lectured at ENT meetings. I'm real familiar with, with the alternatives they have in the surgeries. And um, 
And you'll find that the philosophy of the people who, you know, want the person to restore function, that's their goal. Mm-hmm. So their goal is, is to restore function of the nose, whereas the other people are about amputating body parts. Mm-hmm. Amputating body parts does not make it work better. Okay? Right. It actually alters flow. And most of the surgeries that are done are inferior interpretant removal. And yeah, you know, uh, nasal septum for sure, that, that needs to be corrected. But the predominance of nasal airflow goes to the middle turbinates, not the inferior. You can look at all flow rates and it shows you that. Mm-hmm. So ENTs are doing things upside down. And here's the amazing thing to me. In our paper that showed nasal valve was the most critical part of that. And that's after people have already had surgeries because they have skeletal surgeries, but they don't ever have nasal valve surgery. So the first point of entry is still blocked even though inside their head might be more open, they can't get air to that point. Right. So, so the end point of the surgery is no real increase in flow. And so that's why, you know, you need to have somebody that looks at it from the point of entry all the way through the oral pharynx. Okay? And, and that's the issue. And then there's a lot of people that think you need to make big holes so that the sinuses can drain out was not the understanding that those sinuses are filled with nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. And that's what stimulates the cilia to carry out the debris. So once you poke holes in there, all the nitric oxide leaks out, the cilia just die off. And so whatever goes into your your, sinuses stays there. Now you have a whole new problem you didn't have before. Thank you very much. (laughs) Here to be improved. And now I have to assume my own uh, immune system care on a daily basis by lavaging it and keeping it healthy when when my body was already designed to do that. So right. those are the huge things. And that's why I really try to counsel people before they go to an ENT that I don't know. Right. Because I, I, I always say, you know, if they are, are recommending amputating parts and making holes, I think you really need to, you know, get a second opinion about Absolutely. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about different um, nasal sprays. So I know you wrote a paper on the xylitol, uh, the clear nasal spray, and how it can increase nasal volume by 20%. Is that a standard that you recommend your patients use? Yes. Actually, right now, they're doing a double-blind um, study in uh, Florida um, and, uh, uh, on its efficacy for treating COVID. Um, turns out the uh, grapefruit extract preservative in that product uh, kills COVID. And um, so, so wow. the, that's one of the advantages. See, um, what I try to do is, is make sure that people can breathe day and night. And, right. um, but the ad- additive of the xylitol is antimicrobial. You know, that's why we put it in dentifrices and, and, and these things to you know, reduce bacterial count. So, um, so it kills viruses, bacteria, fungus, and, um, and in the aerosol, um, uh, the saline solution in clear is hyperosmotic. So um, it, it basically has the same osmolarity as blood. So when, you, so when you're taking it in, it helps to reestablish these, these inflamed tissues in your nose, and, and it lavages it, washes it. And so you have this film layer with the xylitol in there, and it stays there until you have the mucosal slough that you get every three or four hours as your sinuses drain. And that's why you have to reapply it. So during the day, it should be reapplied every three to four hours in order to give you good protection and to keep things open. Um, and yes, uh, we found a 20% um, increase in volume. Now, that may not sound like a lot to people, but you have to understand for every 1% increase in volume in your nose, there's a four-fold increase in flow rate. That's Poisson's law, okay? So, so a 20% time to the fourth power is a tremendous amount of increase in flow rate. Wow, that is. That, that's fantastic. I love, um, I love the product. I've been using it for a while now. My, I make my boyfriend use it every day. I'm like, did, did you use your clear nasal spray? I mean, now he's good at it. Now it's just a habit. But in the beginning, he would use it like, eh, every couple days miss a few then go good for a week. But I definitely, um, nasal hygiene is certainly something I have in my myofunctional therapy programs. 
um, that every patient must perform for sure. Good. That's great. Absolutely um, great. And what about nasal dilators? Well, yeah, you know, uh, there's um, the highest correlation we found. Um, I think it, I'm trying to remember in the paper, I think it was about 72% of the time uh, of the patients, of the 1,400 patients we had in our study uh, who had uh, facial pain who came in for jaw or facial pain, I think it was about 72% of them had nasal valve compromise. So it's a quite frequent thing. So I would say most, almost all of my patients um, need to wear some kind of nasal dilator, you know, breathe right strip, mutes, there's, there's so many of these different types of uh, devices out there. But something, you know, uh, I tell them, I don't care if you stick something in your nose, on your nose, but you've got to keep that first point of entry open. And then right. the sprays work for the tissue inside your head mm -hmm. and the combination of those. Um, and some of these people, you know, that's the funny thing in, in ENT meetings is the one question you never ask a patient, can you breathe through your nose? Because everybody says yes. Yep. And then you take an x-ray and you see a complete wall of tissue. And it's just that people are accustomed to the way they are. Mm -hmm. And they've never been different, so they right. think they're normal. Right. And that's where they have issues. And then when you open it up for them, boy, their eyes get big. And then mm -hmm. they're just, you know, well, now my nose is cold. Well, yeah, that's because air is going through there. And your body is supposed to warm it. That's, that's the whole idea you know, to warm, moisten, and filter the air before you bring it in your body. That's your immune system. Mix it with the nitric oxide so it can go into your lungs and get pumped out through your vascular system. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, see, nitric oxide not only is antimicrobial, but it's a peripheral vasodilator. Mm -hmm. So when it gets in your bloodstream, it dilates the blood vessels in your feet and your hands so it lowers your blood pressure. So there's a lot of physiologic um, benefit from breathing through your nose. And most people just don't understand these relationships. Now, um, would you say that the most common procedures that your patients have with the ENT that you're comfortable with are septum correction and turbinate reduction? Um, not turbinate reduction isn't always necessary. I, if you have contrabilosa, which is an expansion or pneumatization of the middle turbinates, um, yeah, um, you have to have those uh, in order to correct flow. Um, no, sometimes it's um, about opening the drain tubes for your sinuses. Um, you have a, a, a little area that deflects air off of your middle turbinates. It's called the uncinate process. Mm -hmm. So as air is going through, it bounces off of that and prevents air from going into your sinuses. You don't really want inspired air going into your sinuses. Less than 0.1% of all inspired air actually goes into your you're actually drawing air out. You're drawing the gas out, the nitric oxide. And that's, so it's, something's coming out rather than going in is what I'm trying to say. Right. And that little canal there is called the infundibulum. And sometimes those are closed. And that's why the drainage, the, the sinuses can't drain and you get mucus retention, chronic sinusitis and all this. So sometimes a simple ballooning technique, you know, a balloon sinuplasty, where they insert a balloon, pump it up and just separate those things without actually having to cut away mm -hmm. um, is, a, is a much, much better uh, procedure because it restores function without taking away parts. Right. Yeah. Now is, um, well, do you have a myofunctional therapist in your practices? Is myofunctional therapy something you do as an adjunct to your treatment plans? Yes, well, my staff are trained. Uh, I also work with um, uh, therapists outside, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that are private. Um, and um, yes, I've been very active in that community for quite some time now. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, um, all of these patients have a respiratory component and um, um, a portion of them also have physical uh, limitations, you know, tongue tied to various degrees and this sort of thing. Um, uh, and so it's about finding out what is the, um, it's finding out what is the primary limitation for each patient. Um, uh, I wouldn't say every single patient needs malfunctional therapy, right. but, but, um, but there are portion that do. And, 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 and also in preparation for release and then after. So, and especially for children, I treat um, a pediatric OSA. Right now I'm working with Judy Owens from Harvard and uh, Rakesh Bhattacharchi from uh, 
um, Radies Children's Hospital in San Diego. And um, so we're, we have a uh, research project where we have a visual screening tool. Um, and it's about malocclusions, forehead fascia, all the kinds of things that are related to uh, obstructive sleep apnea. Tongue tie is one of them. You know, um, and so um, we put this visual together and on one side and on the back is all the medical literature that relates to this. And we're validating this through 20 uh, dental offices throughout North America. And we're gonna assimilate this data because we wanna validate this tool, okay? And we're working with the American Academy of Creative Facial Pain. In fact, if anybody who's listening to this wants to donate to this effort, because this is what we hope will be the standard worldwide mm -hmm. where dentists can look at this and, and identify children who may have apnea and make a proper referral because we weren't trained in this. And right. conversely, for physicians, that already have made the diagnosis, that now can refer to dentists that are properly trained to treat children. Okay. So this is what we're, we're doing right now. And um, yeah, so if anybody has interest and wanna to contribute to that, the AACP on their website, aacfp.org, um, um, uh, and they have a donation page for this um, validation pediatric screening tool. Um, we hope that that will be the industry standard and uh, for both medicine and dentistry. Um, and just think of all the children that are gonna be helped because people are looking now. You know, now most people wait till they're adult before they identify they have a breathing problem and then their whole life has been terrible. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible, you know. And uh, the earlier we identify, the better quality of life for everyone. Yeah, if you, if you can touch a little bit on um tongue tie and how it affects sleep and TMJ. I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, in explaining it to parents, they don't, well, first, a lot of parents I find don't really know how poor their children are sleeping because once they, you know, are at an age where maybe they're not going in to check on them, they don't know how they're breathing, how they're moving, if they're sleeping, if they're awake, if they're tossing and turning or, you know, whatever the case may be. I mean, yes, behavioral wise, but a lot of people don't associate that with sleep deprivation and oxygen deprivation. Um, so then when we start, you know, assessing and we assess the frenums and we see the restriction, um, if you want to touch on how a restricted frenum can attribute to um, TMJ and sleep issues. Well, I guess it starts from birth, doesn't it? So um, <laughs> if you have uh, these um, physical limitations, um, just nourishment is going to be the first issue you're going to have because you can't latch on. And, um, you know, so therefore, you know, it's, it's from day one. So these things are, are addressed, hopefully, as quickly as they're identified. Um, and, and like anything, the, the sooner you identify the issue and address it, the easier the solution. Right. But as things are allowed to progress and, you know, any, any limitation of function. So let's say um, your eyelid only half closes. You know, one does and the other one only half closes. And so that, that one that doesn't fully close is now going to be susceptible to all sorts of infections, viral, bacterial, who knows, maybe eventual loss of that eye because, uh, you know, of, of this, of this, you know, inherent problem. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the same thing with the tongue. If it doesn't function, it, you know, like we say, you, you can't nourish yourself, you can't breathe properly. The tongue must have, you know, is the organ that is using this development to develop the maxilla mm -hmm. to go up, rest up there, develop. And so if that is tied, then the maxilla is limited. The roof of your mouth is the floor of your nose. So the inferior portion of your septum is the maxilla. And so the vomer and the maxilla, because the maxilla is underdeveloped, now that, that, um, that inferior portion, which is at right angles, is now going off a different way. Mm -hmm. And so then that's why we see deviated septums. And that affects the flow rate. What that means, because I know a lot of people talk about deviated septum, but what does that mean? You know, mm -hmm. what, what, what's the consequences of that? Well, the consequences are, is that if, if your septum is, is, is straight, as it should be, so there's equal volume on each side, then you should have um, uh, flow rates that, uh, that alter, you know, channeling is what we call it, from left to right every two to four hours. 
but the side that a, that a septum is deviated towards doesn't channel. So you become a one-sided breather and actually the overstimulation causes these bones to expand. That's why you get contrabilosa and these kinds of issues. So now you have a bone blocking your breathing in your nose. And so your nasal breathing becomes worse and worse. Now, if it's a bone, it's, nasal spray is not going to help you with that. It's not going to shrink a bone. Right. So therefore, the, the person's problems become more and more profound. So the more mouth breathing, the more facial pain, the more jaw activity, the more inflammation, eventual jaw arthritis, breakdown, and then that leads to forward head posture, neck pain, back pain, hip pain, foot pain, and that's my world. So it's whatever you catch the person on the continuum, you know, and the earlier you identify it, that's why if we were evaluating children in this way, mm -hmm. see, that's my mission. We were evaluating children in this way and get all these things straight from the beginning. My goodness, by the time they get to, even teenagers are breaking mm -hmm. down. You know, I, I see kids in chronic pain at like seven, you know, five, okay? Uh, so people think that chronic pain comes when you're 50. No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It just, just depends on the degree of the pathology. Mm -hmm. I have a friend um, right now that she has chronic pain. And um, gosh, what has she had done? She's had Botox done. She's been to a bajillion different doctors. They just found out she has, um, oh my gosh, I always screw this up, the gene mutation, MTHFR. Am I saying that right? MTHFR? MTF, yeah, MTHFR, right? Okay. I always get the F and the H backwards for some reason. Um, but anyways, they just, you know, found that she has this mutation and now, you know, the pain is going down to her limbs and her leg. Um, she's like, they want us to, and I've been telling her, um, Dr. Gelb is kind of like the closest around here that really specializes in all this stuff, Michael Gelb in New York. So I've been telling her to go see him. Um, and she's like, well, now they want to send me for a sleep study. And I'm like, go, you need to go. You're not sleeping. You are in pain all the time. I mean, it's completely changed her life, her lifestyle. I mean, she, you know, she goes to work and stuff, but I feel completely awful and I can't make her do anything, but she needs, she needs to go. She, she needs to. Well, I might make a suggestion you. that's closer. Bethany Brenner, uh, who's our center owner in Connecticut, could easily help her and actually understands the um, orthopedic protocols that we use. Most dentists don't screen a person for orthopedic problems. Um, Dr. Gelb, I don't believe, does. So, you know, that's, that's a separate set of issues. Uh -huh. But even a person who is predisposed, and I've treated so many people with, mm -hmm. with uh, you know, immune systems and rheumatoid situations and all these kinds of, uh, you know, highly inflammatory problems. But even though they're compromised, if you restore function, digestion, and proper posture, universally, everyone gets better. Mm -hmm. Now, the degree is all dependent on your predisposition to issue, but your life can be made better. And the whole thing that most people want is quality of life. And right. if you can restore that, that's what, that's all people are really asking about, you know? Yeah. And I'm certain that if you ask your friend that, that's, that's what she's searching for. Oh, gosh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, and yes, I know Dr. Brenner. So that's a wonderful idea. I don't know why I didn't think about that before. I have actually have her uh, pamphlets in my drawer here. That will be way closer um, for her. Um, that's fantastic. Thank you um, so much for all that. The last thing I wanted to touch on is um, the role that low level laser therapy can play in chronic pain and how you use that to treat patients. Yeah, I've uh, written a couple articles on that, um, the, um, uh, on treating uh, neural injuries, trigeminal neuralgia. Um, we had so many uh, different therapies over time for muscles and ligaments and this sort of thing, but we never really had any real um, definitive uh, therapy that, to regenerate tissue, mm -hmm. um, neural tissue, until the lasers came along, especially the more sophisticated lasers like the MLS from BioResearch because that delivery system has two different wavelengths and two different delivery models. So it has 808, 905 wavelength. And so 
And so with a pulse, which is a, what's called a cold laser, you know, because it doesn't continuously heat up the tissue. Mm -hmm. and, and the other continuous, but interrupted. So it, it's pulsate. So when one is irradiating the tissue with one light, like, then the other is, is blocked. And, and then, so there's this, this dual action with two different wavelengths, with two different um, uh, uh, delivery systems. And that, that in itself has literature that shows that you can regenerate um, nerve tissue. And so I've written papers uh, about how um, uh, in patients with, that we treat with trigeminal neuralgia that we're able to get them off the um, you know, uh, anti-seizure meds like uh, Tegretol and Neurotin and Lyrica and all these kinds of things that they have to live on. That after a time, um, you know, uh, your body just uh, accommodates to, there's a tolerance to the meds and then they don't work anymore. So um, this is a huge thing uh, in our evolution. In terms of musculoskeletal pain, um, it's dramatic. It accelerates the mitochondria, so cells turn over at a faster rate. Um, it reduces inflammation, reduces pain by 50% in just uh, minutes. I wrote a paper on our five-minute technique for treating um, jaw, face, neck, and shoulder pain um, uh, using these techniques. and. Uh, in the study we did from two to two of our different centers, uh, we were able to get a 50% reduction in pain from the first application. So um, that's that's you know, and and it's non-invasive. So you know the 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 morbidity, the risk to it is so low mm -hmm. that um, you know there's very little contraindication. So um, that's been an amazing tool um, for those people that do orthodontic procedures. It accelerates the rate of tooth movement anyway from. 32 to 50 percent, depending on whatever study you're looking at. So, um, so there's a lot of, in, in, you know, and in, in dentistry general, you know, I can't think of a dental procedure operative that that isn't inflammatory to hard or soft tissue. Okay, and that's not comfortable. So if we lasered those people after any procedure, you right. know, periodontal, operative, whatever, um, those people would be leaving that practice not hurting and their healing would be accelerated. I just think universally that's, that's something should be integrated. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize the, the percentages of increase um, with the laser therapy. That's phenomenal. Um, something that definitely every dentist should get on board and, and have one in their office. I didn't even, you know, we're talking about chronic pain, but I didn't even think about, you know, having restorative work done, how that would even heal everything much quicker. That's fantastic. Um, is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we did not touch upon? This was all absolutely fantastic. <laughs> well, well, thank you. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to share things. You know, my mission has always been to get the word out, you know, and, and thanks to people like you that, you know, get, give a forum for this uh, because, um, you know, people just need to know that yes. there are alternatives. There, there are much easier ways to feel better. Mm -hmm. um, and the thought that it's all a needle or a pill and um, that's going to correct all their issues. Um, one thing we didn't really touch on that I think is very important is nutrition. Yes. Um, what, you know, that old adage, you, you are what you eat, is, is so true. And um, one of the big things that we try to um, explain to people as they come into our practice is, is really eating in an anti-inflammatory way. You see, um, they come in in pain. Some of it is local to orthopedics, and, and a lot of it is systemic. You know, when you talk about migraine and this sort of thing, that's really digestive issues. That's leaky gut. That's systemic inflammation that's being pumped through your vascular system, and then, of course, in your brain, and then swelling in the blood vessels is causing these kinds of headaches. That's a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. So if you want to address these kinds of issues, you've got to look at the gut, you know, and you can't be eating things like wheat and dairy and sugar that are that are causing sloughing of your digestion. Those those uh, wheat glutens that make holes in your digestive tract mm -hmm. that then make pathways for all of this systemic inflammation. You know, those are the kind of things that people just don't understand. Uh, yes, we love bread. Well, it's designed for you to love it. It's <laughs> genetically modified to have 50 times more gluten than the natural wheat. You know, it's addictive. Um, and so these things, it actually attaches to the mu receptor, the opioid receptor. And that's why it's physically addicting. 
So that's why it's so hard for people to give up wheat. You know, mm -hmm. um, they actually have to go through a withdrawal in order yeah. to accomplish that. Yeah. So 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 eating properly. What's that? You know, everyone says I eat well. I say, okay, tell me what you had for lunch. Tell me what you had for dinner last night. And quickly, you'll find that there are multiple irritants. Okay. And sometimes it's just not the things they think of. You know, they think, oh, you know, yes, I understand the, the major things, the major players here. But, you know, I eat a lot of vegetables. And, okay, great. What kind of vegetables do you eat? Well, I love tomatoes and I love that. Egg, eggplant, I, you know, zucchini, you know, that sounds great. Well, those are all full of lectins. Those are highly inflammatory, you know, and you eat those. And that's what's producing your systemic inflammation. That you have to denature. See, plants... Um, they concentrate toxins in their skin and their seeds so animals won't eat them. That, that's their protection. Okay? They don't have any other protection. And so we consume them and we become inflamed. Mm -hmm. And we have to understand cultures have already figured that out. In Italy, they don't eat tomatoes raw. They, they, <laughs> right? they, they yep. cook them. They, they steam them. Or excuse me, pressure cook them. Mm -hmm. They peel the skin off. They take the seeds out. And then they make the tomato. And they certainly don't cut it and throw it on a salad and think that's a healthy thing to do. People just don't understand that mechanism. Mm -hmm. So if we can get people to understand an anti-inflammatory diet, ah, the general achiness goes away. And, and that's the quality of life, but it all depends on how much people want to, you know, change their lifestyle. And that's the hard part. Right. Um, that's the hard part, is getting away from the, the fast food kind of thing. What are three foods that, the listeners can start incorporating immediately into their lifestyle. Just three, your top three foods that you would suggest that have, you know, anti-inflammatory properties. Well, you know, certainly salads and this sort of thing are, are all good things. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, uh, you know, your Brussels sprouts, your, your cruciferous, uh, you know, the broccoli, cauliflower, you know, all these kinds of things are wonderful. You can get your omega-3 fats from flaxseed. You can, you can supplement. You don't need as much protein as people think you do. Um, and, um, but, you know, um, more than, you know, three things that are good. How about here's three things that you shouldn't eat, you know? Yeah. And that's the biggest thing because it's, it's the good doesn't wipe away the bad. Right. If you don't do the bad, I tell people I've got a prescription. I, I got lots of prescription pads. I, I, but what I'm doing is I'm writing an antidote uh -huh. for the poison that you take in. And I said, listen, I got tons of these. I can, I can call it in, I have the staff going, we, we can do this for the rest of your life, but there are consequences to your body. You're going you're gonna to start bleeding from your, your mm -hmm. stomach lining. You're gonna have, your kidneys are going to shut down. You're going to have liver issues. And if that's your life, that's what you want. Mm -hmm. But there's another way to do it. And, and the three things that are most inflammatory in the average diet are wheat, dairy, and sugar. Because every time your insulin spikes, you, you produce cortisol and you're producing what's called oxidative stress in your vascular system. And that's what thickens your blood. That's what produces clots. That's what clogs up your arteries in, in, in your brain and your heart. And that's what you usually succumb to. You know, what's the number one killer? Cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. So we have to understand we, we created that. Right. And that's why we have type 2 diabetes. You know, it's so like every third person has diabetes and 90% of that diabetes is type two. That means they created it. They weren't born that way. Right. So that's something that's profound. I hope people, um, I hope people make those changes for, for their betterment. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, some people say, oh, I can't do that. You can, it's a lifestyle change and you have to get used to it. And you know, you gotta maybe prep a little more or, you know, make your grocery list ahead of time, but it, it's totally doable. And the way that, you know, your body will feel and just like we talked about this whole podcast, just the quality of the impact it can have on your quality of life. It's totally worth it. You know, if, if your desire is to feel good, you can achieve it, mm -hmm. um, but you can't keep doing the same things and expect a different result. And that's the frustration people have. And it's exactly what you said. It's a lifestyle change, not a diet. Mm -hmm. A diet means I'm going to, I'm going to 
take things away from me that I desire for a period of time, and then mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to doing it again. Right. What is the purpose of that? Why torture yourself at all? Just don't do it. But if your desire is to make a lifestyle change, a lifestyle change yep. and have a better quality of life, well, then wonderful. You know, right. have a great, have a great life. <laughs> Absolutely. And you hear my dog is now in the background barking, yes. so I apologize for that. He right in cue. I thought I was going to make it through an episode he, without him he barking. But he said it's time. You know. Yeah, he's like, all right, let cut, cut. <laughs> well, Doctor Almost, thank you so so much for doing this. This has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I can't wait to get this episode out there and have all the listeners listen to it. Now I am going to link uh, the AACFP.org um, for the donation for the research. Oh, thank or you. Any thank other you. Um, information you would like me to link? Well, just to our website, you know, um, PMJ Therapy Center, C-E-N-T-R-E.com. And that gives them all of the uh, center's locations, all the information about what we do and the information about uh, courses and things. If, if dentists want uh, education, uh, we're doing a, a new series of courses in San Diego just starting next week. And um, uh, so, um, you know, we're, we're going on. Uh, we've, we've got a facility great enough where we can have proper social distancing and mm -hmm. everything. So it's an attended um, People, I think, are a little bit tired of uh, watching videos, you know. Yeah. So um, we want to get back to, you know, the, the, you know, a little bit of the way it was. So yeah. it'll be a transition, and you know, um, looking forward to 2021, where you know, hopefully, uh, we get back to our, our our world, you know. Oh gosh, absolutely! I cannot agree more. Um, thank you so much again for taking the time. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of I Spy with My Maya Y. If you want to hear more about these episodes, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or feel free to contact me at bsierra.omt at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe as well and let us know of any subject or guest speaker you'd like to hear from. Help spread the word by sharing today's episode on your social media page. You can find me on Facebook at CT Oral Facial Myology and Instagram handle CT underscore oral facial underscore myology. Everybody have a wonderful day.